pray that you'd be with us. Uh, pray that you would help us to um, to just be in your presence, to to hear your word, uh, to focus on you, to put away everything that isn't um, isn't something that's going to draw us into your presence and, and help us to know you more. I pray for uh, pray for that I would be faithful to you, that I wouldn't uh, stray off into my own opinion, that I would. Uh, be coherent and, and maybe not too long-winded. I pray that uh, the folks who are here today would, uh, would hear your word, would hear um, from your spirit this morning, that they would hear uh, uh, your heart in your scriptures. Uh, and I pray, um, I pray that we would uh, grow and be fed through this time. In Jesus' name, amen. I, uh, last week, I um, asked, all right, so I got up to speak and I had forgotten to bring a pair of glasses with me. Uh, and that was uh, unfortunate as I get older. Uh, my eyes aren't all that bad, but they're bad enough that as I get older, I have trouble uh, with reading. Uh, things get a little fuzzy and messy, and it does help me quite a bit to have a pair of reading glasses on. Um, and the uh, the big problem in my life is that I lose things. I... I have probably 45 pairs of reading glasses, um, of which I can currently locate two. Uh, so my uh, son and uh, Mr. Uh, Frank went down to my office when I asked, and they brought me the only pair of glasses they could find down there, which were these. Uh, now, a little bit of background. <clears throat> yes, they are fake. Thank you, Titus. Uh, several years ago, uh, as a family uh, Halloween costume, I dressed as Doctor Who. I wore glasses for that. These are not real glasses. <coughs> they are plastic lenses that are no magnification, no distancing, no stigmatizing or anything else. And I, I didn't know what to do with them. I didn't want to throw them away, so I just tossed them in a drawer. And that's what they found, and they brought them up. And I did not want to say, I didn't want to stop in the middle of my sermon and say, oh, yeah, these aren't real, and have to explain why I had costume glasses in my drawer or, you know, make Titus feel bad because he helped me out, which is wonderful, but he brought me glasses that weren't real. And so I wore them for about half of the sermon and looked through them, despite the fact that they are not magnifying or anything at all. I was pretending, uh, which is just absurd. Uh, and that was all the way up until I took them off and I accidentally popped one of the lenses out and then I was like, all right, forget it. I'm not even going to pretend if one lens is missing, it's obvious, I hope. Though I don't know that anybody would think anything different of me than they ordinarily would if I were to wear, uh, glasses like that. So, um, why am I sharing this story? I am sharing this story because this is the first Sunday of a season called Lent. We've been preaching through Acts. We're taking a break on that, and we're going to do some Lent stuff. We have not typically done Lent. Uh, I don't know that it's necessarily a Church of God thing, um, but I'll give you a little explanation, and you'll understand why I'm talking about glasses, okay? Uh, Lent is the, it's not 40 days before Easter. It would be, except that it's more. Uh, it's like 44, 43, 44, whatever Wednesday to Sunday is. Um, so it starts, or 46, it starts on Ash Wednesday, which is this past Wednesday. And we don't do ashes, but a lot of churches, they'll put the little ash thing on your forehead, right? Which is generally composed of the ashes of uh, the 
palm leaves from Palm Sunday the previous year, right? They dry them and burn them, and, and it's not that easy to burn palm leaves. I did it one year, and I was not happy with the outcome and swore I would never do it again. Um, so we, uh, we, you know, Ash Wednesday is usually this thing, and it's sort of this beginning of the season. And then for 40 days, people will fast, and they'll do all kinds of other stuff. A lot of churches do different services. And here's the purpose of it. Um, once upon a time, the church viewed specific days as a huge deal. And we still kind of do, but we're a little less, like, focused on it now. You know what I mean? I mean, we got Christmas and we got Easter, right? Um, in the ancient church, they did all kinds of, like, elaborate things to prepare for Easter. Because they would look and say, this is the day when we are going to remember that God's son came and he, like, bore the weight of our sins on the cross. And he was, you know, tortured to death. And, and then he was resurrected that Sunday, assuring us that, like, our sins are forgiven and that we will live in eternity, that death is not the end. And they would say, you know what, this is such an important thing that we need to prepare for it. We need to put in the effort. We need to do the work so that we are spiritually ready to do this. Everybody with me? Um, there are times uh, over the years when uh, my wife and I would uh, go on dates and we would watch uh, movies. We go to the movies, right? And there are things I've discovered that, like, off-color comedies are not good date movies if you're trying to romance your wife. <laughs> Action movies, also not good. Right? Superheroes, right off. Like, right off. We did. Though for our uh, 15th anniversary, we went and saw uh, Batman, the one with the Joker in it. Uh, so that. But, like, there, there are things you don't do in preparation for, like, romancing your wife. You have to get her in the mindset. And you got to get her thinking the right way. you got to dress nice and put out candles because it has that light. And maybe take a shower because if you smell bad, it doesn't, you know, like, make her in that sort of thinking mood. And, like, this is what Lent is. Lent is a spiritual preparation for Easter. Um, a lot of times it's associated with the time in the desert when Jesus went into the desert and was tempted. And we're going to talk about that text this morning. We're going to talk about how it fits into this topic. But before we get to it, I want to encourage you. I want to say this. Like, I, I, I don't know about y'all, but I am going to spend Lent. I'm going to try really hard to spend Lent preparing myself. I, I perceive it a little like training camp, right? If I was going to run a marathon, my brother's going to run a race in Big Sky this uh, Labor Day. Is that the one at the end of summer? And they're going to run up and down a mountain in this race. And I said, I'm going to do this with my brother. And I said, but first I've got to practice. And I started running and I realized I've gained so much weight that I can't run right without my knees hurting. And so I have a lot of preparation to do. If I don't do that preparation, I might finish the race, but I probably won't. <laughs> the preparation for Easter is so that we get to the point where we're ready to engage it in a way that is meaningful, in a way that speaks to us deeply, that reminds us who we are in Christ. And I'm going to try and do this. It's hard for me because daily stuff is hard. I don't remember to do things, but I'm going to try. Um, and I'm not saying that so you guys will say, oh, Eric's awesome, but because like you're going to hear about this because I want us all to at least put some effort into this. All right? If this is a thing that is attractive to you, this next few weeks will be fun. If it's not, it'll still be fun. Um, 
So, as we dive into this, like, we're going to talk about the desert. The reason there's 40 days for Lent, or 46 or something, it's really weird. Like, it's, it's a weird number because it's not Sundays don't count. Um, and so it was like 40 days without Sundays, and then they pushed it to Easter, or to Ash Wednesday and a couple other things. Like, it's a whole weird dynamic, and I do not understand it, and I can't explain it to you right now. But... The big idea here is, as Jesus went into the desert, the first thing he did was he fasted, right? So he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in the desert, and this was a preparation, um, and it was a demonstration toward this, like, overcoming of temptation. And I'm going to explain this, but this is a huge deal. This 40 days is preparation. Got it? If... I, I went to school forever and ever and ever, and I, it was not until I was in graduate school that I came to understand that um, getting good grades really required that I prepare to take tests, right, and prepare to attend class, like sleeping beforehand, or, you know, not sleeping while I'm there, or just not showing up, or what have you. Like, like preparation makes us capable of overtaking and accomplishing. And so we're going to start in Matthew. I'm going to put on, these are the fake glasses. Uh, oh, I forgot to talk about the glasses. Oftentimes we approach things from a spiritual perspective, and we put on our spiritual glasses, and our spiritual glasses are really our glasses with a lot of warm and fuzzy feeling attached to it. Right? When we spiritually prepare, we learn to put on God's glasses, and they see things from God's perspective. I do not naturally see things from God's perspective. I see them from Eric's perspective. Got it? Every politician I agree with is on God's side, right? When my wife and I argue, she's sinning, right? When my, I, this is like sort of an ironic statement, honey. Um, we're going to talk about putting on God-colored lenses and looking at the world through God-colored lenses. And so we're starting in Matthew 4. What has just happened is Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. He's dunked. He comes up out of the water, and the Spirit descends on him like a dove. And God the Father says, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. There's a lot involved in this. We're not going to talk about it today. Um, but just understand this is, like, that's the context. And so, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. And then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, um, led by the Spirit, meaning the Spirit that descended on him, the Holy Spirit took Jesus out to face this uh, trial or this temptation. Um, now, there's this cool thing that happens in the Scriptures where things that happen in the Old Testament parallel the life of Jesus. Because Jesus, especially in this instance, Jesus is um, Israel, right? Fulfilling God's expectations perfectly without sin. Whereas when Israel was in Egypt, right? Because Jesus, the first thing that happens, one of the early things that happens in his life, his family flees to Egypt to get away from Herod. And then they come back, right? So like, just like the Israel, he went to Egypt. And then just like Israel, he spends time in the desert. Forty days, like the 40 years the Jewish people spent, which wouldn't have been 40 years if they hadn't been horrible. Um, don't worry, we're all horrible, uh, except for what Larry said. Um, we're in God's image, but our sin makes us horrible. So the Spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, which is sort of an understatement, right? 
um, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, this is sort of funny because there's a bunch of weird little parallels in the statement and everything else. First off, 40 days, 40 nights. Um, one of the first ways that the Jewish people sinned in the desert was they got out there and they looked around and they said, there is no Starbucks here. There is no Taco Bell. What are we going to eat? We're all going to die. Thanks a lot, Moses. God, why didn't you give us bread? God, why, why did you bring us out here to die? We would be better off as slaves. Let's go back. And so God responds by giving them manna, right? And it's actually in response to their sinful, sinful selves that they end up with manna because they didn't, you know, like they, they needed something to eat and they knew they needed something to eat. But God, having rescued them, they didn't say, oh, God's going to take care of us. They said, hey, where's the buffet, Right? Their response to God was not faith, it was shallow. And so Satan comes to him and he says, listen, if you're really the son of God, make these stones into bread, which is very much in parallel to this manna thing, right? Now, if we take it a step further, in the previous passage, what we were told was, um, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And so the very first thing that Satan says is, hey, if you really are the son of God, so he calls it into question, as though, you know, he has to prove who he is, but he doesn't because he's the son of God. I mean, like, you don't have to prove anything to anyone. Um, this is very similar to what happened to Eve. Do you remember this line? Did God really say? Did God really tell you? And so this temptation, it's an old trick. It is a thing we've seen before. And the line basically is, is it really true that this thing that is true is true? And prove it. Just like Israel. And Jesus isn't dumb. Um, he, I assume, sees through it. He's also hungry. I think he was genuinely tempted. But having fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he's hungry. And so in this desert setting, all of these temptations are going to parallel the desert wanderings. Like they're all going to be connected. And you will see little examples. Or in one instance, it'll parallel even in the Garden of Eden. So just heads up. So, we go to verse 4. Jesus answered him, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, it would be very easy to read this as a standalone and think, well, wait a minute, what would be wrong with him making bread? Until you realize that this is manna, right? Like, this is Israel's failure, and he has to succeed where Israel failed in order to redeem the people. Um, That is a huge concept I will try to get into over the course of this series, but not today. Um, now, let's look at this in context. This is Deuteronomy uh, 8, 2 and 3, because he's quoting scripture in response. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to be humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his command, commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that... Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Meaning, the point of the original text was, all of this stuff happened, and the question was, were you going to trust and honor God, or were you going to do your own thing? And so you're out there, you're hungry, you're struggling, you're worried, are you going to trust God, or are you going to do your own thing? And in the end, Israel did its own thing, and Jesus steps back and says, you know what? I'm out here because God brought me. I'm out here to fast because God brought me to fast. I trust that God will take care of me. 
A man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now, um, real quick, this text, well, hold on before we get into that. Um, there's an important thing that just happened here. Every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Having fasted for 40 days, and I'll tell you, this is one of the many purposes of fasting. Fasting, we do it for all kinds of reasons. In this instance, it is Jesus preparing and focusing on God. And having fasted a little bit, I'm not saying that as a brag at all. Please do not hear me bragging about my fasting. Generally, after a few days of fasting, something amazing happens. You stop thinking about anything else, and prayer becomes so much easier. I never had as easy a time praying constantly as I did when I would fast for long periods. Because by stepping away from your flesh, you focus on your spirit. By focusing less on feeding this part of you, your soul like sort of communes with God more intimately. And so this fasting he's doing, part of it is his preparation. And as a reminder, that man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, Traditionally, the church applies this text, this 40 days in the desert, to Lent because um, we're supposed to spend these 40 days fasting or praying or doing something spiritually focused in order to bring us into closeness and intimacy with God in preparation for the cross and for the empty tomb. We're to remember our sin. We're to remember that Jesus was obedient in all temptation on our behalf, right? And we're to remember that he saves us, which is amazing. And that is a weird place to be. There are times in my life where I am super aware that I sin a lot. I'm going through a period of that in my life right now where everybody and his brother has been loving and friendly enough to tell me, not everybody and his brother, trusted people that I love have informed me of areas where I've fallen short. And it sucks. But... It sucks for my ego, not for me. Because if I hurt people, if I say things too loosely, I speak very impulsively, right? And I I don't think that's right. I think it's sinful. I talk too much. I think that's another problem. But, like, there are a bunch of these things in this mouth area because, anyway. um, But as I grow in awareness of this sin in my life, I can say, you know what, even though I, I genuinely screw up a lot. I genuinely do things that are, that are sinful. Christ loved me so much that he would die for me. And so my ego dies, and I begin to realize that what matters in me is Christ in me. And my awareness of my sin makes the cross all the more glorious. I realized in college once that the darker the world around me, the darker the light that comes off of me as a man The darker the news is, the darker everything in the world is, the brighter the light of the cross. You ever notice that, how a light bulb is that much brighter the darker it is? If you don't believe me, drive out 10 miles into the country in the middle of the night on a night when there's no moon. Step out into the dark and turn your phone on. It's bright. And a lot of times our own sense of the world is not accurate to God's perspective And by going through a period of preparation, we can reach a point where we can look and say, oh, wow, Christ did a lot for me. And he did. He did so much for me that I do not deserve. I could not merit. I could not earn. I wouldn't even ask for because I am so not on the same level. But Christ was obedient and he saved me. And so in this period of Lent, like one of the things we're supposed to be doing over the next six weeks, when people say, oh, I gave up chocolate cake for Lent. 
I personally gave up liver and onions. You do, right, son? Uh, I am giving up, uh, I mean, whatever. Like, I, I, I'm always tempted to give up something that will help me lose weight because that's not the point. In reality, I give things up because I understand that by being hungry for something more and turning my attention to the Spirit or t- turning my attention to God, I end up in a new place. Proper biblical fasting involves using time you would normally be spent for that that would normally be spent on that activity to pursue God. So when you fast from all food, you spend your meal times praying. When your stomach rumbles, you stop and say, "Thank you, God, for the things you've given me." Help me to hunger and thirst after your righteousness. When it's time to watch TV on, you know, in the evening after work, like instead of doing that, I, I would step away and read the scriptures, right? Like pursuing God is the purpose of it, and that's the purpose of Lenten observation. Um, so you're going to keep going because I am going to go way over, but I started late and I don't care. I know, I always apologize. Instead, I start apologizing. I think that was impulsive. I shouldn't have said that. Um, Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he has commanded his angels concerning you, and they will lift you you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot on a stone. This is a great verse, isn't it? This is one of those ones that goes up there with like, I know the plans I have for you, and do not judge. And I think there's another part to it I forget. The trick is it's out of context. The same as, I know the plans for you, and the same as, do not judge. What the psalm he is quoting says, if you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all of his ways, in your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now, here's the tricky part. Is that saying you can throw yourself off stuff? No, absolutely not. It's not a a license to perform magic tricks. In the same way as like God will bless you and overflow your cup isn't saying that if you believe hard enough, God will give you a Rolls Royce. It's not what it says. But folks will take texts out of their context, and you see preachers do this all the time, right? Which is why I try to do a lot of scripture and a lot of backup, because if I want you to know I'm not making this up. Um, he took it out of context. He said, hey, you can throw yourself off and they'll catch you. And Jesus knows it's taken it out of context. And he knows that it's true that God will protect him and watch his steps and everything else. He knows these things are true, but he knows that's not what that verse is about. And so Jesus responds... Jesus answered, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, quoting Deuteronomy again. This is Deuteronomy is the collection of sermons that Moses did before he retired, died, uh, (laughs) about like their time in the desert as they prepare to go into the Holy Land. So the text originally was, do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at at Massa. Massa is near the city of Petra in Jordan, right? And there's a little building over the spot where this happens. It's actually kind of cool. There's a rock there with a little stream coming out of it, and it's about the only place in that 
dry, awful, hot, miserable spot that has water. And what happened was when they were there, the people were mad and they were yelling at Moses and they're like, give us water. God's going to kill us. He hates us because he didn't give us enough water. We're all dying. We're all dying because all they did was complain. It was like taking your kids on vacation in the car. Right. I got to pee. He's touching me. He's on my seat. He's looking at me. Um, Um, and they put God to the test by demanding. And actually, Moses was commanded to give them water a certain way. He got mad, and he just, bang, hit the rock with his staff. And water came out of it, and God's like, why didn't you do what I told you to do? And Moses didn't go to the promised land either. Um, When they put him to test, what they were doing in the desert was, they were saying, God will not take care of us. He promised to, and he's not doing a good enough job. We demand more. Anybody ever feel that way? Tell you, I worry about money and I say, God, why can't I? And then I realize I live at the top level of people in history as far as comfort. You know what I mean? It's insane. God has given me so much and sometimes I complain anyway. And by sometimes I mean a lot. Um, And so Jesus responds. He's like, I'm not going to be Israel in the desert. I'm not putting God to the test. By the way, this would have been the top point of the temple was on a cliff and, uh, the Kidron Valley is below it. And so you're talking about like, I don't know, a 200-foot drop. Like he would have jumped off and flown, I guess. Um, it, would have, it would have been a very dramatic display. And having engaged in showmanship, it would have shortcut getting the people to follow him. But he knew it wasn't God's will. It's not what the text says. So finally, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. I'm going to give you two verses here. Obviously, this is a no-brainer. Like, you know, we don't worship Satan, right? Everybody knows this. It's not a reveal. I didn't make it a point in the outline because I thought everybody knew it. You can pencil it in if you need to. When the woman saw, this is Genesis, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. This is Genesis 3, 6. Uh, I'm going to show you John, 1 John 2, 16 as well. For everything in the Lord or in the world, the lust of the flesh. By the way, lust of the flesh is, turn this into bread, right? The lust of the eyes, which would be perform this circus trick so that everybody will see how awesome you are. And you can shortcut all of the hard stuff. Right? And number three would be the pride of life. The pride of life in this instance is Satan is saying, listen, I get that you're going to get like this cross thing is happening. You are here. You're off the throne. You're in the flesh. This is humiliating. This is low. God has sent you to redeem the world. You are literally going to be as humiliated and low as you're going to get for the rest, you know, in in all of eternity. And at this point, you can skip it if you just give me what you want. And our world is full of examples like that. The pride of life where we don't want to give of our ego, where we don't want to be humiliated, where we don't want to step this way. And we say, you know what? Satan's way is the easy way. The world's way is the easy way. I think I'll shortcut. I make it a point. It is so miserable. When I screw up, I try to 
go to people, even if they don't know I screwed up, I try to go and, and be repentant to their faces because I want to be humbled. I want to be humiliated. More so than I am on the average Sunday morning when I preach a sermon. Um, I want it to be out there that Christ is the only thing in me that is good. Christ is the only thing that makes me worth listening to. On my own, I will sin and I will wrong you and I will make mistakes and I will fall on my face and everything else. Pride of life. And Jesus says, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil went and left him, and the angels came and attended to him. And so this is the temptation. And so what does this have to do with anything? First off, this text, uh, last thing here, this text, again, is applied to Lent. It is a reminder to us of our sin, how Christ was obedient in the places that we sin, and that we are saved because of his obedience and willingness. I am the guy in the desert making bread into stone. I'm not even making bread into stone. I'm making it into paninis and donuts. Um, I am the one saying, let's perform some magic tricks to get people to listen to me. I'm the one saying, you know, ridiculous stuff or making dumb jokes sometimes just so folks will listen or whatever. Like, I'm the guy doing that. That's me. And I don't think any one of us is that far away from this. As far as worshiping Satan, I haven't done it willingly, but I've rebelled against God plenty. I've taken shortcuts, right? Anybody here who hasn't? Right? We're Israel in the desert. We're complaining about the food. We're rebelling. We're demanding God do what we want him to do, not what his will is. And so as we do this Lent thing, the purpose of this isn't to fast so you look awesome. It isn't to give up something so you can lose weight. It isn't to check a box. Look, I was holy. I didn't eat peanut butter for a whole seven weeks, six weeks. It's not that. It is training in the same way that training like Football. If I was going to go and play football and I didn't go to the summer camp to practice and I didn't go to daily conditioning and I didn't lift weights and I didn't do any of that stuff, I just stepped out on the field, a 45-year-old man who's about 20, 30 pounds overweight at the moment, um, or 40-year-old, anyway, uh, if I did that, I would get hurt. I would have no business being there. I, I went to uh, an art museum once, and before I went, I read about... Monet, and it was a Monet exhibit, and I knew a bunch of stuff about him, and I walked in, I enjoyed it, and I understood it, and I got more out of it, and it was amazing. I've gone to art museums and ignorantly looked at everything and not known what was going on. Um, I, a few times I've had the blessing to talk to Dwayne about books, where I'll read a book and I'm kind of as shallow and like not well-read and not literary as possible. I talk to Dwayne, who's like brilliant with this stuff. And I get so much more out of it talking to somebody who understands. The reason we do Lent, and you don't have to. It's not like you're going to hell if you don't. But this is an opportunity to go to training camp. It's an opportunity to get up and do the runs in preparation for running with my brother this summer. Right? Not, nobody's actually running with him. Probably not even me. Um, it is prep. It is learning to take off the fake glasses, the fleshly glasses, the glasses that say, you know, I'm doing pretty good because my neighbor sins way more than I do. And have you seen what those Democrats are doing? Have you seen what those Republicans are doing? Have you seen what these guys are doing? Have you seen what the... If I look at the world through my eyes, I'm going to fail every time. It's just costume jewelry, and Christianity never works as costume jewelry. So the important concepts here. First off, Jesus' obedience stands in stark contrast to our own sinful nature, right? 
I mean, just hard to miss this. Um, it is the exact opposite of who we are by nature. Um, in Christ, we see an example of how to follow in obedience. And we as believers, in our newness in Christ, in our baptism, we're made new. We're capable of overcoming and being like Christ. But it means that we spend our lives pursuing and desiring to be like Christ. And so in Christ we can see. And one of the things we can see is he knows the scriptures well enough that you can't lie to him using the Bible. Right? Which is funny because I have read that text a million times. And the first time I read it, going back and looking up Jesus' response in context and Satan's verses in context, I was like, oh, wow, I did not realize what was happening here. All right. But knowing the scriptures makes a difference. Reading, praying, I fasting, honestly, even fasting from TV or, you know, getting up a little early and fasting from that last hour of laying in bed, which is so wonderful. It is dessert in life, I think. Um, and spending time with God. Like, this is a thing we see in it. And it gives us an example to follow. And finally, Scripture is twisted constantly. Like, um, we will always encounter these examples or people will say judge not lest you be judged and the truth is that what christ said was by the same standard that you apply to others meaning if i am overweight which i am i have no business talking trash about gluttons right or you meet these folks who are like the church lady and have something nasty to say about everybody but don't look at their own hearts ever like humility and knowledge of who we are and coming to a place where we know the scriptures and what it says about us, we understand it in context and the truth of it all. It is the key to growing spiritually, to prepping. And so how do we apply all this? Because there's a lot of stuff, right? Um, I'm not saying you must observe Lent, but this is an opportunity to do it in a very measured way. Um, We can spend the next six weeks devoting time, um, stepping away from, from... Things that we might enjoy, like I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna not watch TV at night. I'm gonna spend time reading and praying. I'm gonna find somebody that I can pray with. Uh, I'm going to. One of the things Calvin said was uh, that one of the primary purposes of fasting, in his mind, is to not eat in order to save money in order to give it to someone else. Um, I say that at a time when we have so much and we're talking about bringing clothes and shoes and blankets and donations to help care for brothers and sisters who have been driven out of their homes, refugees, people who the scriptures tell us to take care of. This is an opportunity, not just to do it in a small way that's sort of a Christian glasses kind of version of things, not a costume jewelry kind of thing, but praying for folks who have been like displaced praying for, for you know, peace in that place, caring for the people who, you know, like are connected to that and like donating and doing the best we can to, to, to do what is right by them. Not just changing my Facebook profile picture, which I don't do, but a lot of folks do because, look, I'm good. Look, I'm Christian. I'm worried about refugees. Look, 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 look. And I guess as James said, what good is it? Well, good is it if your faith, uh, well, I'm going to have to paraphrase, sorry. Good is it if your faith, like, prompts you to walk past a hungry, naked man and say, you know, hope God takes care of you, I'll be praying for you, and you do nothing to help. Like, Lent is an opportunity to love other people, to love people who need love, to take care of folks, to serve our neighbors, to love our brothers and sisters better, to forgive people, to confess sins that we've been hiding, all of this stuff. There's an opportunity to take off our, like, 
our, our, you know, cheap costume jewelry glasses and put on the real thing and learn and train and devote ourselves to seeing the world through the eyes of Christ. Um, I read that the ancients used to fast, like if you were going to be baptized, you would fast for 40 days before being baptized on Easter, like fast period. Um, and when you got to um, Easter, you would be baptized. Uh, and that was a thing that they did because they wanted to learn to see their own sin. They wanted to learn to see what Christ did for them. Uh, this is a thing that we can do. And ultimately, what it comes down to is our spiritual practices grow us in our faith. If you are not doing anything with it, it will die. I have learned Greek three times in my life. Ancient biblical Greek. You know why I've learned it three times? I've learned the alphabet approximately 25 times. You know why? Because it's hard. And how often do I use it? Zero. And I learn just enough to be proficient, and then I never do it again. And it's amazing how not doing stuff. It's like running. Man, I run all the time. And I'm still fat. You know why? Because I don't run all the time. I take big gaps between my runs. Um, This is training time. My challenge for you this week, my challenge for you going forward is to be that. Is to be the kind of people who take periods of your life or every day or whatever to train. Because our job is not to be rich. Our job is not to have the best looking family or the nicest clothes or whatever. Our job is to love Jesus and to raise kids who love Jesus and to be his voice in his hands and his feet in this world. Uh, we're going to do communion, which I did not mean to go this long, but we had a bunch of other stuff that happened. And so I started late and I don't care. Uh, but I do want to share this before I move on. I found this book. I've been looking at it for a few weeks and I decided not to buy it repeatedly. And then I finally did because of this text. And I want to share it with you. This is by Kierkegaard. He wrote... Um, What is left for the philosopher to do when a society is preparing for war? It's about Diogenes. Diogenes was a cynic. He was a philosopher. He chose to be homeless and to panhandle for money, and he would insult people. Uh, Like legend has it, he walked up and insulted Alexander the Great, the most powerful man in history, to his face uh, and survived. Now, Diogenes lived in a tub like a big ceramic tub in the marketplace, okay? So that everybody would see him and hear him, and they had to deal with him, and there was no way around him. If you went to the grocery store, Diogenes was there in his tub. And so, when Philip threatened to lay siege to the city of Corinth, and all the inhabitants hastened, bestirred themselves in defense, some polishing weapons, some gathering stones, some repairing the walls, Diogenes, seeing all of this, all of this, he hurriedly folded his mantle about him and began to roll his tub zealously back and forth through the streets. <laughs> the image here, everybody's polishing swords and reinforcing the walls, and they probably got guys in the fields training to fight. And Diogenes like pushes this giant ceramic like pot and begins rolling it up and down the street with all his energy. And when he was asked why he did this, he replied that he wished to be busy like all the rest. And he rolled his tub lest others should be only idler among so industrious of citizens. There's probably a bit of irony and there's probably a joke built into this. But his his line is, oh, I did it because I didn't want everybody to think I was lazy. I wanted to work too. 
Sometimes we as Christians do that. And I'm not asking you to. Don't move your tub. Right? Try on your armor and figure out how to wear it properly. Spend some time talking to Jesus and figure out who you are in Christ. Look at the sins that you hide and figure out how to root that nonsense out of your life because it will drag you to places you don't want to be. We have a communion this evening, or this morning. It's not evening yet. I haven't gone that long. I'm going to ask John to do this today. Do you want to let people go?